Thank you to our music team. The children can be dismissed at this time. And let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we will be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning, a second miraculous feeding from Jesus demonstrating to his disciples who did not understand who he was, demonstrating who he actually was, the giver who keeps on giving. Mark chapter 8 verses 1 to 10 says, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that your word is to us. And we pray now that you would help us to receive and to understand that gift by the power of your spirit. We ask that you would send your spirit to be our teacher, that we would with humble and hungry hearts receive the truths of your word, knowing by faith that it nourishes our souls. God, we pray that as we look at this miracle that Jesus has performed in the past, that you would help us to see it from a fresh perspective, and that it would deepen our understanding of who he is and deepen our trust for him as well. We ask, Lord, that it would increase our love for him, that you would help us by faith to walk in the implications of this reality. Not just what Jesus can do, but but who Jesus is. And then knowing that for all those who repent of their sins and believe him for eternal life, that this is the one who gives and keeps giving and keeps giving and keeps giving. Who ultimately, finally, and eternally satisfies. Lord, we confess that we are prone and tempted to sometimes try to satisfy our longings with the things that the world offers to us. As we approach the the Christmas season, as we approach Christmas Day, Lord, we confess that we are busy doing a lot of different things. Certainly none of those things are inherently bad in and of themselves, but we ask, Lord, that you would help us to make sure that we're, we're taking time to recognize all of these things as gifts from you. Help us to take time to remember to sit at your feet. To not, be, to not busy ourselves with many things, but to enjoy you, to enjoy your presence with us, to enjoy the gift of yourself that you have given to us. 
And we pray, Lord, that this passage would, would help us to cement that truth into our hearts so that our living would reflect the truth that you have given to us today. We pray, Lord, that if it's necessary, that you would open eyes to see this truth for the very first time. That anyone who needs to come to see Jesus Christ as the provider of all things and the only one who can satisfy their soul, we pray that you would do that very thing, Lord. We know that only you can open ears, only you can open eyes, and we trust you to do that very thing. For those of us who know you and recognize you, we pray, Lord, that our knowledge of you would not bring a familiarity that leads to complacency. Lord, we pray that we would not be bored with who you are. That we would not be used to the miraculous, but that these signs would point us to who you are. And we would forever rejoice that we know who you are. That because of what you've done for us to pay for our sins, to rise from the grave, you have made us the people of God when once we were not even a people. Help us, Lord, to see those things. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are now just one week away from Christmas Day. And while this holiday season presents all sorts of bright, happy, joyful moments, there's also a dark side to this holiday season. The reality that while many of us most likely are very excited to approach Christmas Day, a day when we get to focus on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and a day where we get to exchange gifts and eat good food, a day where we get to enjoy the many gifts of God, including taste buds and pie, coffee, cinnamon rolls, and the giving of and the getting of gifts. The reality is, while there is probably excitement here today, and there is certainly excitement all over the world, the holiday season also brings with it feelings of deep depression, feelings of deep loneliness, Feelings of extreme anxiety as we shuffle ourselves around from one event to the other in a dizzy tirade only to end with the new year when everyone finally sits down and says, what in the world just happened? The holiday season certainly brings excitement, but the reality is it also brings a whole tremendous amount of anxiety if we are not careful to capture our hearts and to fix our minds on the one who this holiday season represents. As we look at Mark chapter 8 verses 1 to 10 and we see yet another miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ and in fact we see yet another feeding of a great crowd of people this time slightly different this time within the section of Mark that highlights Jesus's ministry not just to Israel but Jesus's ministry extended outside of Israel and to the Gentiles whom Israel would have considered unclean. He's encountered a Syrophoenician woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit and he's taken care of it. He's encountered a blind man in the Decapolis 
uh, excuse me, a deaf man who could not speak. He'll encounter a blind man in a little bit here. A deaf man who could not speak, and yet Jesus opened his ears and loosened his tongue. And now in that very same region, Jesus meets yet another hungry crowd. This time, his compassion extends to them because they had been devoted to him, faithfully following him, and now they're hungry. And they're in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert, a long way from home. And it seems that their provisions, the things that they most likely would have brought with them, have run out. And yet they demonstrate that they, at least from Mark's account, don't really seem to care that they have no more food. They just want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so the compassion of Jesus extends to them. And once again, he shows not only his disciples, not only the crowd, but he shows us not just what he can do, but who he is. You see, that's what the signs, that's what the miracles, that's what the wonders that God produces are meant to do. Not just show us what he can do, though he certainly does that. But in showing us what he can do, he shows us who he is. So that our eyes would not be fixed on what he can do, but on who he is. And certainly who he is then results in what he can do. But we don't look to the, the things. We look to the one who provides the things. This is what we need to understand as we come to this miracle. You've heard of the gift that keeps on giving. Well, Jesus is the giver who keeps on giving. You remember from last week that the disciples didn't understand this. Mark makes it emphatically clear in this particular section, and it will culminate in not next week's section because we'll take a break for Christmas, but the following week's section. When he, as I read last week, he questions the disciples, and the result of the question ends up with him saying to them, do you still not understand? We're still within that context when Jesus is attempting to show his disciples who he is, that he really is the Messiah. And yet they don't get it. There are uh, certain scholars and certain people who look at this particular feeding of the 4,000 in Mark's account and in Matthew's account as well and and surmise that based upon the, the fact that the disciples should remember, they surmise that this really is either a duplicate event or is just something that Mark made up. But Mark duplicates this event because Jesus duplicated the event. Once the first time in Jewish territory and now this time in Gentile territory. And Mark puts it here within the context of the disciples' lack of understanding because he wants us as the reader to go, how did they miss it? And then the Holy Spirit wants us to say, yeah, but how do I miss it? What is, what is the result? What is the root? What is the root of anxiety? What is the root of that which makes me worry? Surely that root must be unbelief. Unbelief. 
It's a failure to recognize not just what God can do, but it's a failure to recognize who God is. And then for the Christian, not just a failure to recognize who God is, but then a failure to remember what God has done for me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a pain that we all know, isn't it? Anxiety, worry. And this particular season only tends to bring that out all the more. It's a common temptation for everyone who lives in a fallen world to be anxious. To wonder, perhaps, how are we going to provide all the gifts that we want to provide and yet still be able to pay the bills? It's a temptation, perhaps, to think, how am I going to get all of these normal household chores done and then on top of that, get ready for all of these other events and get the kids, re- the kids presents ready, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, not everyone experiences those particular uh, moments of worry, those particular moments of anxiety, but the reality is whether you experience it in the holiday season or you experience it when life gets hard in general, you know what it's like to worry about something, to be anxious about something, to look down the timeline of the future and say, I don't know how this is going to end up. And so the, the Lord Jesus steps into those questions. He steps into those anxieties. He steps into those worries. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And so every moment of anxiety for the Christian or the non-Christian is a moment when I fail to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus now does for me, what his death and resurrection has secured for me everlasting peace. And so as we then look at this familiar miracle, this feeding miracle, I want us to see three reflections of the identity of Jesus that remind us to rest in him. Three reflections of the identity of Jesus that remind us to rest in him. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, When you come to recognize that the only hope for your soul, that the only thing that will truly ever satisfy you forever is Jesus. When you come to that place and you turn away from your sin and and you throw yourself at the mercy of God found in Jesus and, and you recognize that there's no amount of effort that I could ever put into this life that will ever satisfy me and will certainly never satisfy God. And so I'm done with my own efforts I now rest my soul on the efforts of Jesus Christ, who eternally satisfies me and God. When you come to that place, then my friends, you pull into a safe harbor of peace. And we will certainly get there one day when the Lord returns in glory, and there is no more thorn, there is no more consequence of the fall, and he reigns perfectly forever, and we reign with him. We will certainly get to that place, 
But the beauty and the reality of our witness as Christians is that our lives now are sneak previews of coming attractions of that day in the future. That we can exhibit a peace in the midst of the storm that is profoundly unrecognizable to the world. Such that they say, how are you not worried about this? And you say, well, it does concern me, but I trust God. And so I want us to see then these three reflections of the identity of Jesus that remind us to rest in him. First of all, the first reflection of who Jesus is comes in the compassion that Jesus shows. The compassion of Jesus is stirred up by human need. Verses 1 to 3, the compassion of Jesus is stirred up by human need. Mark begins this section, in those days. It's in the very same days that Jesus traveled to the Decapolis. You remember he was on the coast in the land of, of Tyre, and then he traveled up into Sidon and over and down on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee into the land of the Decapolis, a land which was largely dominated by Gentiles. And so it seems then that as this crowd is gathered, most likely the majority of them are Gentiles. Gentiles who in Mark's gospel show more interest and more understanding in who Jesus is than even the Jews themselves. This is the beginning of what Paul calls the time of the Gentiles. When a partial hardening has come upon Israel and some had recognized who he is, Mark the writer, for instance, Paul the apostle, for instance, and many, many others, but yet largely Israel failed to see who Jesus was and then the Gentiles started to see there's something to this man. There's something to this man that points us to the God of Israel. And so he's in the same region, the the land of the Decapolis, And Mark tells us yet again, a great crowd had gathered. You'll notice he's using those words to remind us that this had happened once before. It's not that he's telling the same story again, but he's saying with every effort that he can muster, he's setting us up to understand that the very same thing that happened with slight differences is about to happen again, and the disciples are still not going to get it. He says a great crowd had gathered and he said they had nothing to eat. So you see the problem there. A great crowd had gathered. They were following Jesus and they had nothing to eat. And so Jesus this time sees the problem, whereas last time the disciples saw the problem of food and went to Jesus and told him about it. This time, Jesus himself brings up the problem. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, hungry, to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So the problem is that this crowd had been with Jesus, which is a strong word in the Greek. It's a word that indicates that not just that they were with him, but they were all in with him. It's a word that indicates that they were devoted to following Jesus. They were in the wilderness with the teacher and they weren't going anywhere. That's the idea here. 
The crowd shows extreme and total devotion to Jesus, even to the point that they would stay with him long enough to run out of food, and they apparently didn't see that as a problem. I don't know about you, but when I run out of food, within a couple hours, it's a pretty big problem. Now, I fully confess that is a result of my, uh, my own sinful heart and my sinful stomach. But what we see in what is most likely this group of largely Gentiles, what we see is a devotion of, to Jesus that must be matched by us. A devotion to Jesus that says, I want Jesus. And I don't care what it will cost me. And so they demonstrate this devotion to Jesus. And Jesus recognizes the problem here. They've been with him three days. Now they've got nothing to eat. Either because they left so quickly they didn't take anything with them to eat. Or because in that span of three days they ate whatever it was that they had with them. Either way, there's now no more food left. And the people live so far away... And most likely the temperatures have risen. You'll notice there's no more grass anymore. It's a desolate place. It's late spring, early summer at this point, most likely. The temperatures had risen. If you've ever been to the desert when it's hot, you understand the scorching heat is enough to make you faint by itself, even if you have food. So Jesus understands that if I send them home, they're going to faint because some of them have come from a long way away. He sees the problem of their hunger, right? But look down at the very first thing he emphasizes in what he says to the disciples. Does he emphasize the problem? No. He emphasizes his character. I have compassion on the crowd, he says to them. That's the very first thing that Jesus wanted to make crystal clear to his disciples. I have compassion on this crowd. He could have said, listen, guys, it's been, it's been three days now. They've got nothing to eat, and I have compassion for them. And it, and it would have been equally as meaningful. But Jesus places the emphasis here not on the problem. He places the emphasis here on his compassion regarding the problem. What was it that stirred up the compassion of the Lord Jesus for this hungry crowd? It was their hunger. The last time Jesus saw the crowd, he looked out on them and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. And so the first thing he did was teach them, which is certainly an expression of his compassion. But now, most likely, he's been teaching this crowd already and now he sees them and his compassion is stored because they don't have anything to eat. Teaching and good works are both equally results of the compassion of Jesus Christ. Teaching and good works, meeting hungry, uh, meeting hungry mouths with something to eat, are both important indicators of God's love. Sometimes those of us who love the gospel in our sort of tribe, we get it, we get it lopsided. We rightly emphasize that it's the gospel that the world needs, and and that's absolutely 100% true. But then we sometimes get so lopsided in the gospel that the world needs that we forget that sometimes the world is hungry, and sometimes the world is thirsty, and sometimes if we send them away, they'll faint. 
And so we can give them the gospel and also give them something to eat. Now, I think that we understand that, but you've probably, if you've been in, in different churches before, you've maybe sensed a little bit of lopsidedness there. Not so in Jesus. Not so in Jesus. You see, the compassion of Jesus is stirred up by human need. We don't walk physically with Jesus anymore. We don't see him yet face to face like the disciples did. Oh, he certainly walks with us spiritually. He says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is here this morning. We don't walk in the same way that the disciples do. The Lord Jesus is ascended where he now presently sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, it's time, son, go get your people. That's my own translation of it. We wait for that time and it's coming. But we must not ever think that in the waiting period that Jesus' compassion has diminished in any way. The same compassion that Jesus had on this hungry crowd is the same compassion that Jesus has on a needy world. Do we understand that? That the Lord Jesus, in all his glory, seated at the right hand of his Father, on his Father's throne, is still exuding his compassion on this world. His compassion is stirred up by human need. And how now does his compassion go out to the world? Through his church. You see, so as we think about the reality that Jesus' compassion is stirred up by human need, there's a couple of different points of application that we need to make. First of all, we should understand that we, the people of God, who have been saved by the compassion of God and brought into that very same compassion, must emulate that same compassion toward others. I don't know how a person can understand the compassion of Jesus and yet fail to give compassion to other people. I don't know how that can happen. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think we all are concerned at various points and at varying levels about the condition of our nation, are we not? The lunacy that is happening all around us. And the temptation then is to respond to that with evil, with a sharp tongue, or harsh actions. Now make no mistake, We need the courage to stand, but it takes so much more courage to do good than to return evil for evil, doesn't it? It takes so much more humility to to take a slap on the cheek and not return it, but to, like Jesus said, turn the other cheek and let them slap that one too. But isn't that exactly what the Messiah came to do? Isn't that exactly what happened to the Messiah? Did he not lay down his life so that we might have life in him? And the Messiah then expects that as we follow him, we must overcome evil with good and not return evil 
So if we understand the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must, we must, it's non-negotiable, we must emulate that very same compassion. And then, in addition to emulating that compassion, and perhaps even more important, and the key to emulating that compassion is to be in awe of the compassion of Jesus. We must be in awe of the compassion of Jesus. We must look at the compassion of Jesus here and we must look at the compassion of Jesus in our lives and just sit back and say, wow, Lord. Wow. I can't believe that you would save someone like me. After all the things that I've done in my life, after all the sins I continue to commit against you, after all the times I fail to trust you, even when I know exactly who you are and I know exactly what you'll do, I know that I don't know the future, but I know that you do and I know you've already said it for me and yet I, I still fail to trust you. Why, Lord, do you continue to hold on to me? And yet the answer comes because I died for you, because you're redeemed. Because you're a child of God and that's a non-negotiable. Because once you're adopted by the Father, there's no undoing your adoption. Because the Holy Trinity himself is now on your side and has demonstrated by the Father sending the Son, the Son dying, the Son and Father sending the Spirit, and the Spirit opening your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ so that you could sit back and go, wow. And isn't that the key to being compassionate yourself? Seeing the compassion of God extending to you, the love of God poured out in your own heart so that then you could pour the love of God out from your heart to others? What's necessary for us to be in awe of the compassion of Jesus? You have to have a right understanding of your own sinfulness and unworthiness. Pride creeps in when we start to think, thanks God, I deserve that. Now, we know enough to, we know better than to say, I deserved it. But when we fail to be in awe of Jesus, what our actions say is, I deserved what you did for me. In fact, Lord, you're pretty lucky to have me on your team. Number one draft pick right here. But we know that's not true. We know the reality is that the compassion of God is at the very core of who God is. And the compassion of God is then extended to sinners who deserve nothing, nothing, nothing but his wrath. So, so let me ask you then, in, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, and I want you to think about this all throughout the week, do you understand and have you embraced by faith the reality that the only thing you deserve from God is his unending anger and punishment for your sin? That's the key to then seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the right perspective. Because those who have seen the depth of their own sin also then see the heights of the glories of God in Christ displayed for us in the cross and the empty tomb. And so we don't, we don't rest in our own pityness, in our own pitifulness, in our own sinfulness. 
We see our own sinfulness and it causes us then to fix our eyes on Jesus who paid for every single one of those sins. That's the key to being in awe of God, to being in awe of Jesus and his compassion. And when we are then in awe of his compassion, we exude his compassion. And when we are in awe of his compassion, we can rest. We can rest. Because that compassion is not a past tense compassion. It's a past, present, and future. It's not just that God was compassionate to you at one point in your life, but dear Christian, God is unendingly, unceasingly, forever, full throttle, compassionate toward you because now the love of God that falls on the sun now rests on you in the sun. And so we see the compassion of Jesus is stirred up by human need. And then we see that the provision of Jesus defies logic. The second reflection of the identity of Jesus that reminds us to rest in him is that the provision of Jesus defies logic. Verses 4 to 7, the disciples have a logical, mental problem. Verse 4 says, and his disciples answered him, how can, one feed, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Or perhaps more literally, where can one find bread here in this desolate place? Verse 5, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Verse eight says, and they ate and were satisfied. The disciples have a problem. Yet again, just like they did before, likely months later, but in Mark, just a couple chapters later, so that we would understand that the question that the disciples ask ought to make us go, seriously, guys, the dude just fed over 5,000 people, and you took up 12 baskets full. Are you really going to ask him, where are we going to find bread in this place when you're standing next to the bread of life? And yet I would ask us, I would ask you, are you really going to worry about the future when you know the one who made it all and holds it all in his hands? The disciples meet Jesus' problem and the crowd's problem with great perplexity. How are we going to do it, God? There's no possible way. Look around, Jesus. There's nothing out here. We're in the middle of the desert. It's a desolate place. And yet, what did Isaiah 35 tell us? It says about the Messiah that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom 
like the crocus. It shall, abund- it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Jesus was about to, in a parched land, in a desert land, in a land where there was not any food to be found, he was about to take what they had, just like he had done before, and make it more than enough for the crowd that was gathered there. And yet, they still asked him, how's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? We don't really have any way of getting into the minds of the disciples to understand. There's a lot of speculation. You can read different things about certain commentators think that, well, maybe this question was designed to sort of pique Jesus' interest. The disciples knew he could do it, but it wouldn't be polite to say, Jesus, can you just, could you just rain some bread down from heaven like you did for our fathers in the wilderness? Could you give us some more manna or, you know, could you just reach in your cloak and pull out some fish or something like that? We know you can do it. We saw you do it. Could you just do that? We don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking, but we know exactly what they said and we know exactly what they should have said, or at least something like what they should have said. What they said essentially was, Jesus, how is this going to work? What they should have said was something like, Jesus, we don't know how this is going to work, but we trust you. There's a big difference between those two statements, isn't it? We don't know how this is going to work. We don't know how this is going to work, but we trust you. There's a huge, huge difference between those statements. And yet you and I face situations all the time where we say something like or think something like, I don't know how this is going to work, God. And yet there's still a big difference in saying, I don't know how this is going to work, God, and saying, I don't know how this is going to work, God, but I trust you. Reminds me of a time in our lives when we were uh, considering moving toward, uh, moving toward pursuing adoption and foster care and uh, just desiring to have children. We knew we were getting a little bit older and uh, we just knew it was time. And yet at the same time, as we looked at our, our financial situation, it was, it was good because we were both working and we compared our financial situation to the debt that we held and we just thought, I don't know. It doesn't seem responsible for us to have Katie stop working and figure out how my income is going to meet our needs because when I did the math, in all honesty, it didn't work. And some faithful, faithful older couples in our church said, yeah, we faced the same problem when we thought about having kids. And one thing that they kept saying to us, it was, it was interesting, in different, in different settings, one thing they kept saying to us was, God's math is not our math. And we thought, well, yeah, that sounds really good, but we're the one that has to pay the bills. And so we just decided to say, Lord, we don't know how it's going to work, but we trust you. And we're grateful for the influence of these wise saints that you've given to us. And so we don't know how it's going to work, but we trust you. And then the moment we chose to trust the Lord, 
certain things unfolded, and it's a long story, but eventually Katie never went back to work, and you know what? We've never been able to not pay for what we needed to pay for. We might not get to take all the vacations we want to take, but honestly, we'll see that in a better place in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know how it worked out, but it's true. God's math is not our math. God's math is more like Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. The disciples didn't get it, but then Jesus showed them. And you'll notice again, what did Jesus do? He asked them, well, what do you have? We've got seven loaves. Okay. Break it. Thank you, Father, for providing this. Pass it out. 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 I don't know how long it would have taken to pass out seven loaves to 4,000 people, but I imagine it would have taken quite a while. Who did Jesus use to pass out the loaves? The disciples, yet again. He's showing them. I am the one who takes what you have and makes it more than what you need. Because I am the maker of heaven and earth. I am the one who produces bread from bread. I am the one who has what you need, whatever meager offering you have to give, I am the one who takes it and in a way that confounds the wise, makes it enough. So that the glory rests not on the disciples' ability to give out bread, but on Jesus' ability to multiply it. And yet, the disciples were still a part of that, weren't they? Because Jesus wanted to show them that the bread of life was going to die for their sins, rise from the grave, and then was going to send them out to tell others about him that satisfies their souls. And so what should we do with that? I think it's obvious. We must trust Jesus to provide every need that we have. You must trust Jesus to provide every need that you had. And you want to know the good news? You actually can. You really can trust him to provide every need that you have. Which possibly in your mind immediately raises a question that says, well, what about when he doesn't? What about when I have something that I want or maybe even I have something that I need and and Somehow it just seems to slip through the cracks. What about the, the people that are forced to, it, it, it breaks my heart every time I drive home, the people that are forced to sleep in their vehicles next to the river out here when the temperatures drop into the 20s. What about them? Does Jesus provide for their needs? You see, here's the key to the provision of Jesus. These people were dedicated to following him. You see, Jesus is not a genie that has come to give you everything you want. Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth who, who demands your worship, who deserves your worship. And when you give that worship to him, then he provides everything you need. And what he is continually teaching you, even when he sometimes strips away things from you or doesn't give you something that you want, what he is continually teaching you is that he and he alone is enough for you. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ, right? But do we mean it? Sometimes. 
And yet the reality is we can trust him to provide every need. The solution now, right now, is to not beat yourself up for the ways that you fail to trust Jesus. The solution right now is to stop looking at yourself at all and look to Jesus. Because his provision does not depend upon you in any way. And yet the devil would want nothing more and your own flesh would want nothing more than you to keep your eyes on yourself. I'm just a pathetic wretch. Well, you're, honestly, you're right. You are a pathetic wretch. But it's only pathetic wretches that earn the compassion of God. Not earn, receive the compassion of God. And so when you embrace that reality, then you look to the cross and the empty tomb. And you say, God, I know I don't deserve it, but you've given me everything that I need in Jesus Christ. And so even though my heart doesn't feel like it right now, I take it on faith. Even though I might have to look myself in the mirror and say, self, stop believing your lie. Start believing the truth of God. Even if I have to do that, I believe what Jesus says. And those moments are so good because they drive us back to the foot of the cross Every single time. This one, Jesus, is the very one that the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want to ask you a couple of questions, and I want you actually to answer me out loud, okay? Deal? We'll air shake on it. I want you to answer me out loud, If you're not comfortable with that because your answer is no or I don't know, then that's okay too. First question, do you believe that Jesus is the invisible God? Second question, do you believe that Jesus is the creator of all things? Third question, do you believe that Jesus is the sustainer of all things? Fourth question, do you believe that everything was made through Jesus? Fifth question, do you believe that everything was made for Jesus? Last question, do you believe that you can absolutely 100% trust Jesus to provide every need that you have? Now let's remember that because we'll need to remind each other. You'll need to remind me. I'll need to remind you. That's what the body of Christ is for. We put our arms around each other and we say, hey brother, hey sister, I know exactly what you're feeling, but I want to remind you of what's true about your Lord. Your Lord loves you so much that he paid for you. Your Lord loves you so much that he's with you. Your Lord loves you so much that he's coming to get you and he's preparing a place for you one day so that you will always be with him. We must trust Jesus to provide every need that we have. The third reflection then of the identity of Jesus that reminds us to rest in him is that the satisfaction that Jesus gives is more than enough. 
The satisfaction that Jesus gives is more than enough. Verses 8 to 10. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district, to the district of Dalmanutha. Jesus satisfies the crowd. Jesus once again tells the disciples to pick up the leftovers. This time, instead of 12 baskets, they pick up seven baskets, even a different kind of basket. This is the same basket that was used to lower the apostle Paul down from the window when he was, pleading, when he was running from persecution, attempting to save his own life. And then he, Mark tells us the number of the crowd, and then it simply says Jesus sends them away, He takes his disciples, he gets into a boat, and then he sails across the Sea of Galilee back into the land of Israel to Dalmanutha, or Matthew says Magdala, and that's it. What's the reader supposed to understand from this? The reader is supposed to understand the very same thing the disciples were supposed to understand. Jesus and Jesus alone not only satisfies you, But in satisfying you and everyone else who looks to him, he has an abundance left to give. When you and I give something to someone, it depletes our resources, right? We may have an abundance of resources depending on your resources, but in some way, whether it's $1 or $20, it depletes your resources. But my friends, when God gives, it does not affect him negatively in any way. It doesn't deplete his resources to give and give and give and give and give because the point is, although he gives to you, although he satisfies you, there's always more left to give. This is why the psalmist's soul thirsted for God and hungered for God because he knew God and only God could satisfy and then every time his soul got thirsty again, God would continue to satisfy Jesus is going to ask the disciples about this. We read it last week. He's going to ask them about this. He's going to ask them not just about this event itself and the previous feeding, but he's going to ask them, how many, how many baskets did you take up when I fed the 4,000? And they're going to say seven. There's all kinds of speculation and all kinds of thought and theory about what the number seven represents, the number of perfection or completion, the number of the nations that Israel drove out. Maybe it means all of those things. Maybe it means none of those things. But the point is they had something to pick up. They ate what they needed. They were fed to to satisfaction and there was still more. And yet, when, the disciple, when Jesus asked the disciples about that, and they tell him, we picked up seven baskets, Jesus says to them in verse 21, do you not yet understand? Don't you know who I am, was the question. Jesus is teaching them what Mark pronounces from the very beginning of this gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. Who happens to be their Messiah the one they were looking for to save them. But before they needed saving from the oppression of the Roman Empire, they needed saving from the longing that was in their souls. 
They needed saving from the consequences that their sin brought. Certainly the wrath of God against them, but also an unquenchable hunger inside of them. You know what it's like to try to feed that hunger with anything but God. You put something in and it doesn't work and so you continue to put more and more and more in. And it turns out it it maybe works for a, a time period, however long that high lasts, whether it's drugs or whether it's shopping, however long that high lasts, it, it works for that moment. But the reality is there's always, a, there's always a hangover. I always come down and I always realize it, it wasn't enough. And so then you've got a choice. You can either go pursue that thing again or you can recognize, okay, if anything this world has to offer is not enough, then I must need something outside of this world then I must need God. And the good news is God has come to us in Jesus Christ. And while you recognize your need, you also recognize that you have that need met in Jesus. But let me ask you, have you recognized that? Have you realized that nothing in this world satisfies your soul? And no matter how hard you try, It never works. It never lasts. And have you then decided, I'm done. I'm done trying to pursue it my way. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I throw myself at the mercy of Jesus Christ and I receive that mercy by faith. Because that, that is the only thing. He is the only one that will truly satisfy you. So then the obvious implication then is that we must be satisfied in God and God alone. It's not wrong to to own things. It's not wrong to save up for a vacation or take a vacation. It's not wrong to buy a toy now and then. But we must push back the action and get to the reason for the action. Why do I do those things? Is it because I recognize that I need fun and a thrill to satisfy me? And so in order to fulfill that thrill, I have to keep taking trips. I have to keep shopping. I have to keep getting stuff. I have to keep showing people how amazing I am. Or is the why because you recognize God is good and he gives good gifts to his children. And God is not mad at me if I take a vacation. It's always about the why. So the obvious implication is that we must be satisfied in God alone. John 4, John 4, 13 to 14, Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, pointing to the water that was in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in John's account of the very first miraculous feeding where Jesus teaches the crowd there that he himself is the bread of life, John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You believe that? 
you believe that? Then keep believing it. Because it's no less true than the very first time God opened your eyes to it. In fact, it gets even more satisfying the longer you walk with him. This holiday season, Christmas time, is a time of joyous celebration. But not because of what we give for one another and do do for one another. But because of what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who satisfies. And when he satisfies, he satisfies. Completely. Thoroughly. Eternally. So keep looking to him as that satisfaction. Keep believing that he is who he says he is. When your heart is tempted to be anxious, if you are among the many, many, many who battle loneliness this time of year, look to Jesus. Trust that he is the only one who satisfies. Ask him continually, Lord, satisfy me with your presence. Satisfy me with who you are. Help my heart believe. Because my friends, Jesus satisfies. He is the giver who keeps on giving. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have satisfied our deepest longings in him. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace that continually by faith. That we would always know and remember that it's Jesus who satisfies and Jesus alone. Lord, I pray for anyone who does not yet know that, that you would open their eyes to see the truth, that you would satisfy their souls this very moment. And Lord, for those of us who wrestle with anxiety and worry and loneliness and and all the results of, of a fallen world in our own flesh, I pray that you would cement these truths into our hearts so that we would wage war against them. And that with the shield of faith, we would be able to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.